second, if you're visiting, we've, we've been studying through the Gospel of John in the, uh, in the New Testament. And we're going to be deviating from that, again, with some uh, acknowledgement of Palm Sunday. We're going to be looking at the first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. And if you don't have a Bible, the text is there in the order of worship. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. And um, one thing that we've looked at more than once as we've been in this study in the Gospel of John is, is it's just remarkable how Jesus is simultaneously fully God and fully man. That, that's an old, old central truth in the Christian church. He's fully God, He's fully man at the same time. And in His humanity, He will draw from things He has learned as the one perfectly godly Israelite man. And, and when I say His Bible, what I mean by that is what we call the Old Testament you'll see in his teaching that he'll use an image or a metaphor. And then if you look in the Old Testament, you'll realize there were some things that he thought up. And of course, he's God. He could think up whatever he wanted to. But in his humanity, he would draw from these images that you find all through the Old Testament. A couple of examples. Um, In one place that we looked at in the Gospel of John, Jesus says repeatedly, I am the good shepherd. And even if you're not that familiar with the Bible, you, you've probably heard that, that image before. The church is named uh, Church of the Good Shepherd, things like that. Well, if you look in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, you realize that is an old metaphor that God loves to describe Himself as the shepherd of His people, that Israel is the sheep pen. Israel are all the sheep and He's the shepherd. And he's he's drawing from that. Uh, Another one, Jesus loves to talk in terms of, come to me and I'll take away your thirst. I mean, in the Gospel of John, several times water and the taking away of thirst, either with water or wine, comes up. And you look in the Old Testament and quite a few times God uses that way of saying, look, you don't have what you need. You're thirsty. And you're going to all these other places to have your thirst quenched. Come to me, and I'll give you real food that'll satisfy your hunger, real drink that'll quench your thirst. And I want you to bear that in mind in this text. Again, we're not in John, but he's going to do that again in his prayer. This is the night before uh, he is to be crucified. It is very shortly before he is to be arrested and taken into custody and betrayed. And I want you to listen for the metaphor. It's very brief. And here's the thing I want you to think about. When he draws from the Old Testament and uses this term, he is overwhelmed. And I want you to think about how amazing that is. And this could almost sound irreverent, but there have been men and women and even children who have gone to their deaths throughout history not as overwhelmed as he is here. And that should tell you something. It should tell you that he is going into something that's bigger than just dying. It's bigger than arrest. It's bigger than just physical crucifixion. And he uses this term to capture how bad it is. And here's the thing. If if we don't see 
how terrifying this term is, then we actually won't see how that same term ends up being incredibly delightful. If, if we don't see how terrifying and awful this term is, we won't see how liberating and blissful the same term is for us if we believe. All right? Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them, the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. And watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then in verse 42, Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass... Unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father we would ask that as you have let us have this really amazing privilege to know what it was that he was praying as your son was most overwhelmed, as he is the most troubled, as he is stressed, as he's full of sorrow, that you're letting us hear what he's praying We pray that we'll hear what we need to hear. And you will do inside of us and with us what you need to do. And we ask this in His name, Your Son's name, Jesus. Amen. Well, you heard the term. uh, Jesus prays about a cup. And what I want to look at this morning is, first off, what, what is it? What what does Jesus mean when He prays about, my Father, take this cup away from Him? What does the cup mean? And second, why is He about to drink it? Why would He be about to drink something that is so terrifying that it's having an effect on Him that nothing has ever done to Him before? Opposition, fear, threats, attack. Why is He about to drink this? And then third... What did drinking the cup accomplish? Okay, so first off, what what is the cup? What is he talking about? Now, I mentioned this before, but Jesus is doing something that he does a pretty good bit in the Gospels. He is drawing from, in in his humanity, his own biblical background to, to come up with images and metaphors that get across what he wants to say. Now, in the, and when I say Old Testament, again, we don't mean old like, 
reject or, you know, throw it on the pile. It's three-fourths of the Bible. But there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. But the Old Testament to us is Jesus' Bible. It's the Bible he grew up with. And also that he wrote, interestingly. In his Bible, there are two cups that you keep bumping into. Now, the first cup is the one you want. And it's the cup of God's blessing. And one of the most famous Old Testament passages actually talks about that cup. I referred to it in the prayer. Psalm 23, very famous Old Testament passage. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And you can tell that as as David writes this, who grew up as a shepherd, he's saying, you know, even if I go through very hard things, even if I go through the valley of the shadow of death, and he knew what that could be like, both through being a real shepherd and being in real battle, even if I go through that, this shepherd is so good that he's with me and he loves me He's strong, he's got this rod, he's got this staff, but when he kind of just wants to cap it off, the image that David uses is, he says, my cup overflows. That he sets this table for me, even in the presence, I'm so safe, he sets it for me in the presence of my enemies, but he gives me this cup and my cup overflows. Can't ever, it's like one of those, you know, fountains where you, uh, at some kind of party or banquet where you go dip strawberries, you know, and it never runs out of chocolate. It's just overflowing constantly with chocolate. The blessing of the cup that he hands me is always there, coming over the side. Now, that's the cup you want. That is clearly not the one that Jesus is talking about. What's the other cup that you bump into in Jesus' Bible, in the disciples' Bible? Let me read you a couple of quotes. One from the Psalms, one from the prophets. Psalm, you don't have to turn there if you have a Bible. Psalm 75, verse 8. This will give you a feel for it. Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Isaiah 51, verse 17. Now, that psalm referred to all the wicked of the earth. This one is directed at people who professed to follow God and know Him, that lived in Jerusalem. And he says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And, you know, as I studied this and and looked up in the Bible, there are at least a dozen passages like that, especially in the prophets. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Habakkuk. It's just all through Jesus' Bible. And what is it? That there is a cup. And what that cup really is, it's a cup that God Himself pours out, and it's a cup of what He really thinks about sin. And the interesting thing, when you read about, when you see this metaphor, He will sometimes direct it to those who claim to be His people. Sometimes He will direct His comments about the cup to people who don't even profess to know Him. People from other nations, people who had no uh, pretense of ever being Israelites. 
And in one place in the Gospel of Jeremiah, he sends Jeremiah to tell people who, again, do not pretend to know this God or love Him or follow Him. And he says to them, drink this cup. And he tells Jeremiah, if they say to you that we don't want the cup, you say to them, you must drink it. If I can put it this way, this second cup is the cup of what a God who is holy, holy, holy feels and thinks about sin. It is a felt sense of His opinion of how bad sin really is, whether it is the sin of religious people or irreligious, people who claim to know Him or don't. The cup that Jesus is talking about is drinking that cup. That cup. All right, now, that leads to the second question. Why in the world would he be drinking this? And one way that I would suggest to to try to get at that is to think about a passage that we have looked at from the Gospel of John. This was back in the fall. If you weren't here, I'll try to... um, kind of distill this, this famous passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, is where a religious leader comes to Jesus, and he comes at night. It's as if he doesn't want to be outed as possibly believing in this Jesus, maybe thinking that he really is the Messiah. So he comes at night, and he's talking to Jesus. And literally, in the same breath, Jesus acknowledges these different realities about what His Father is like, about what God is like. Now, I I want you to hear this. Again, we're going to start off with one of the most famous passages in the Bible. This is probably more famous than, uh, than the 23rd Psalm. But listen to what Jesus says. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish... And what would perishing be? Yeah, that would be to drink that cup. And it takes forever to drink the bad cup. That they should not perish but have eternal life. And then here's the next verse. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Now, all that is great so far. And then what does Jesus say? The other part of verse 18. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, do you hear what Jesus just said? He did not say, and if people don't believe in me, if people don't believe in the Son of God, one of these days they're going to be condemned. What does he say? He says, whoever does not believe in the Son is already condemned. It's as if he's saying, it's not as if one day a cup of wrath is going to be poured for the person who ignores me. He says, it is already sitting there with the name on it. John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, what have you got there? I want you to think about it this way. That means that we've got something of a dilemma. 
And again, I don't want I, I don't want to be irreverent in saying this. It's almost as if it's a dilemma for God. Because on the one hand, it is the nature of God. It is it is his very nature to be loving and compassionate. To, to abound in love, for it to overflow. That is His nature. But here's the rub. Another aspect of His nature is that He is just. I mean, what do judges do? Judges are not to massage law-breaking. Now, sometimes bad judges just about do that. But what do good judges do? Good judges uphold the standard of the law. And when it's broken, even if you've been a wonderful person, what happens? Punishment. And that is something that you get throughout the Bible, is that God, throughout the Bible, is kind. He's kind to people who could never deserve for Him to be kind to them. And He is over and over and over patient and faithful and loving. But you also get that He is so perfect that he has to punish sin. He has to be just. And what you've got there really is his glory, is that when he looks at a world that he made and he sees the attack that we are making on him, the Heisman that we are giving to him, the way that we do not care about each other, the way that we not only hate our enemies, but we hate just about anybody that gives us a hard time, and that that is what is destroying us and really, in a way, destroying the creation itself. And that brought the curse into the world. When he sees that, he is upset. And that has to land somewhere. So here, here's the dilemma. It is the nature of God to want to give you a cup of blessing. But it is the nature of God to pour a cup of what we really deserve. And because of his perfections, to uphold the fact that someone must drink that cup with our name on it. Um, I worked at a summer camp a couple of summers in northeast Alabama. And it was, uh, it, was, it was a camp run by a Christian family. And one of the things, it was a boys camp, one of the things that we would do at night is you would gather up your little camper flock at night and, uh, you know, sit there maybe on somebody's bed with the flashlight. And there'd be a, a short devotional before they went to bed. And I remember one night, uh, a friend of mine named Ronnie was doing a devotional with his little cabin. And what he did that night was he read, I don't know where he got it, but he thought to bring it to camp. It was a description by a medical doctor of the physical realities of what Jesus went through from his arrest to his crucifixion and death. And it was a lot of things you don't think about. Things like how weakened you are if you bleed from head wounds. You know, if you get cut on the head, you just bleed profusely. What a crown of thorns pressed into your scalp would do. What it does to you to, be, uh, to stay up all night. He was kept up all night. Um, but the one that really stayed with me was to undergo a, a Roman thrashing, these, these 39 blows that would just literally tear out pieces of skin and body. And that it was after that that they put the purple robe on him 
and this came up in the reading before, but they stripped that back off him before the crucifixion, how that would just reopen everything. And he read this to these campers, and one of the campers became very upset. And he said, well, what did he do wrong? And before Ronnie, my friend, could answer, one of the other campers said, he didn't do anything wrong. And he was exactly right. That, you know, from the mouths of infants, that that boy was being hit with the unfairness of this. That that is terrible. But it's worse than that. And I know I've mentioned this before, but I would mention it again. Something that was really upsetting to hear back several years ago when that movie, um, The Passion of Christ, came out. There were aspects of that motion picture that were very well done, that that were very well thought out. But what was upsetting was to hear Christians say about the movie, I'm so glad that now we have something that we can watch ourselves or show to people and really capture what Jesus really went through. No, it didn't. No, it did not. Because whatever we saw, what, you know, however realistic the physical sufferings were depicted, that is not the ultimate suffering. The ultimate suffering is for Him to be up on the cross wearing only this crown of thorns and nothing else, exposed to the world and beat and bloodied and to yell out. And, and when He yells this out, This was a way of talking about God that he had never done. That he yells out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anytime Jesus in the Gospels is talking about God, what does he love to say? My Father, my Father. That's how he prays in the text we just read. But as he's up on this cross, he is screaming out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is he yelling that way? He is drinking the cup. For whom? For those who will take Him at His word that He will drink the cup for them. That He has prayed, Father, I want... This was the prayer that we looked at last week. That, Father... I'm about to return to you. I'm about to return to the glory I had with you before, but I want them to be there with me. It is as if the Father said, Son, you know we can't do that unless you drink that cup for them. You want them to drink the cup of blessing. I want them to drink the cup of blessing. But all these cups have names on them. The cup of your people. Who will drink that for them? Either you will or they will. And so he drinks it. And so he drinks it on the cross. And I, I, I just would mention this. Something that is just deep in the hearts of people like us is that maybe once in a while we'll do something really crummy or really mean or sinister, and we'll see the badness of it, and we'll feel, yeah, that, I, was, I was bad then. That was bad. I exploded or whatever. But we tend to think of our other acts of disobedience, as God defines them, as sort of garden variety. 
And there's a hymn about the crucifixion called Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted. That's a quote from Isaiah. And that hymn makes an amazing statement. It says, and this is to us, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here, that means the cross, here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Worry does not feel like a really evil thing. When we worry, it doesn't feel like a biggie. If you want to know what God thinks of worry, look at Jesus screaming as He drinks the cup and screams out something He's never screamed, God, why are you not there for me anymore? If you want to know what God really feels about men and women who will not stop working, who will have no boundaries, who will work seven days rather than accept the gift of a day of rest, but will keep working and keep being productive, that doesn't feel like a big deal. If we want to see what He thinks about when we do that, that is where we behold it. It doesn't feel like a huge deal to love things more than people. Loving things more than people is the kind of reason that cup is poured. It doesn't feel like a big deal to break a vow that I can't even remember that I made. The wording of a marriage vow. The wording of a church membership vow. But if you want to know what it's like to the God who remembers and heard it and takes it seriously, that's it. That's what He feels. So what does that mean for us? What what did that accomplish? You know, after Jesus' death and resurrection, in the rest of the Bible, there's only two more mentions of a cup. And it's, it's both kinds. L- let me do the bad one first. You get to the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And, and I know that Revelation is hard to understand. There's a lot of images and metaphors that, you know, the church has gone round and round about what, what do these things mean? Are they predictions or what? But hear the clarity of this. As it's describing, this is in Revelation 14, about what becomes of the person who at the end rejects God and does not want His mercy, does not need His mercy. It says in Revelation 14, He, that person, also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. That this is not an Old Testament, angry, mean God, Sunday school thing, and boy, aren't we glad that that's over. If Jesus does not drink our cup, we must drink it. That God, who is love, would extend that cup to us at the end and say, you must drink it. And when an eternal God pours a cup, it takes an eternity to drink it. That is the bad news. And if you're here this morning 
and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're trying to understand what you are, I, listen, believe me when I say that I know that one of the hardest pills to swallow, and culturally this gets harder and harder, I think, is the unique claim by Jesus that it's only through Him that you can be saved. And sometimes the way Christians respond to questions about that is just to quote a verse at it and say, well, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So, boom, that's what He said. And that is true, but it often leaves the questioner going, yeah, but why? Or there's a verse in Acts that says, you know, there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved except Jesus' name. There it says it. Okay, but why? And I want to say this to you. This is the why. It, It is because the Bible is true that whether it's you or a friend or a relative who doesn't believe in Jesus, maybe it very clearly rejects Jesus, can still be an amazing, endearing, fascinating, just... Uh, multifaceted person that you love deeply. And because we love people, we look at that person and want to say, you know what, I just think, believe what you need to believe and it'll pan out in the end. But this is why that is hollow. No one else can drink the cup but a perfect man for whom there is no cup of wrath to drink it for you. This is the why. Where's the other place that you find the cup in the New Testament? You know where it is? It's in 1 Corinthians chapters 10 and 11 when Jesus is describing the Lord's Supper. And of all the things for the Apostle Paul to call it, do you know what he calls it? It's the cup of blessing. This cup When God's people come together is the cup of blessing. Think about this room. One thing that we wanted for this room when we renovated it was that on the one hand, it still looked like a downtown space. And I think it does. Exposed brick walls and all that good stuff that we like. We wanted to keep that. But we also wanted it to look like a sanctuary. And we didn't gussy it up with like tons of banners. In fact, there are no banners, if you've noticed. You know, there's, hard, there's nothing on the walls. It's, it's pretty stark. But what, what in this room lets you know that this is not just a performing venue, but it's a sanctuary? You've got a pulpit, but there are no mentions of pulpits in the Bible. So we could, we could dispense with that. And there's that wooden baptismal font, that octagon-shaped font that we got the water from to baptize the Butchkowski boys a second ago. Now, baptism is in the Bible, but thoughts are never mentioned. So we don't have to have that. But the only furniture or physical objects that are mentioned in the New Testament that are there when God's people come together, the only ones, it's not pulpit, it's not fonts, not a stage, not even coats, table, cup. That in a way, this is the main Christian symbol in this room by Jesus' own choice. And when you partake of this, if you believe in Jesus Christ, 
and you come and you take this bread and you take this cup, do you know what Jesus is giving us? He, he's letting us... We're, we're tangible beings. He's letting us touch. Not an abstract cup, but a real cup. That's why I love it when people kind of nestle it when they take it. Is to take it as a physical person with a soul and taste that you don't ever have to drink that cup of wrath. That He drank that for you. And I can say, without interviewing every person in this room, that every Christian in this room, including the guy in the blazer talking to you right now, falls back into thinking when we go through hard things in our life, what is God punishing me for? And we have got to stop doing that. Punishment is justice. All the justice is done. When Jesus says at the end, it's finished, don't just think of that as end of the crucifixion, end of the cup. I just finished it down to the dregs for my people. There are no more drops of His wrath. He might take me through hard things. He might discipline me as a father in love. He does not punish me anymore. And I'll never have to drink that cup, ever. Let me just leave you with this. Uh, uh, A Christian minister and uh, writer named Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a Welsh Minister, he started out training as a doctor in the UK. Would have probably been very successful. Might have been Winston Churchill's physician in the track that he was on. And he was called into the pastorate and remained one until his death. He died in the early 80s. And he was interviewed by Christianity Today. That's a major, major Christian magazine. A major, major Christian magazine. And, uh, but he was interviewed right before he died... And at the end of this interview, the interviewer asked him this question. Do you have any just parting pieces of advice or any exhortation that you would give to our readers? And this may have been the last thing he said in print. You know what he said? Two things. Flee from the wrath to come. And I I would say to you on the authority of God's Word that... That might sound terribly old-fashioned, but that is reality. That is wise. Flee from the wrath to come. But the second thing he said was, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. All of us deserve the bad cup. Whether you are remembering that He did this for you, for the thousandth time, or whether you've never believed it, and you're about to. Believe in the one who drunk the cup of wrath on his people's behalf, that they might have the cup of blessing. It takes forever to drink that cup too. Let's pray. Father, we bow before one who can pour 
a cup of anger. Divine, perfect, righteous, true anger. But we bow before one who sends his own son to drink that cup so that people like us don't have to. Lord Jesus, you are our Savior. We praise you that even as you were sorrowful and overwhelmed, that you kept going and you took the cup from the Father and drank it. Holy Spirit, drive these truths into our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.